Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In this episode, I interview Dr. Susan David, an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist and one of the world's leading management thinkers and fellow South African on the difference between emotional fragility and emotional agility. How to actually sit with and examine uncomfortable thoughts and emotions so we can shape our experience and become more resilient. How positive thinking can be counterproductive. How to help children become more emotionally resilient and so much more. Susan is the CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology on the faculty at Harvard Medical School, a co-founder of the Institute of Coaching and on the scientific advisory boards of Thrive Global and Virgin Pulse. Susan is also a sought-after keynote speaker and consultant with clients that include the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, Google, Microsoft, NASDAQ, and many other national and multinational organizations. Just before we begin, If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and keep sharing about it on social media. I love seeing what you guys find helpful. Now, on to today's episode. Dr. Susan David, what a pleasure and an honor to meet you, a fellow South African, which makes it even more exciting. But I am I love your work. You're amazing what you've done. It's just so, I can, I resonate with it, being a researcher and a scientist and clinician and everything for years. Just the way you handle emotions, the way you talk about it, it's just so right. It's fantastic. So welcome and thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you virtually today. Oh, it's so nice. And I hope one day we can meet in person. Will do. Well, I am so excited to hear a little bit more about what's not in your bio. So we, we've heard your fantastic bio, very, very impressive, and you've done so much fantastic work. But tell us a little bit about you and what's not in your bio. What keeps you motivated? Well, most of my work really focuses on one question, which is this question about our internal psychology. What does it take internally in the way we deal with ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions and our stories that help us to thrive as human beings in a complex and fragile world, which is very much where we at at the moment. And, you know, so that's really what anchors my work. But of course, like all of us, my history is really what has shaped a lot of my thinking and my research. And so, yeah, I grew up in South Africa. I experienced the death of my father at a young age. And that also shaped my thinking about Mm. these questions. And, you know, really what I'm drawn to is 
pushing back on a lot of the narratives that we have in society about happiness and positivity as being the holy grail, which as it turns out is actually very often when we focus on it as a recipe for unhappiness. And so the center of my work is this idea of welcoming all emotions so that we can be effective in how we love and live, parent and lead. I love that. I love that. I think we're in the same wheelhouse. You're speaking my language. It's just so vitally important that we do what you've just described. That we, and it's true. The narrative of that's shifted over the last sixty years to this biomedical model, and then this external happiness that you've got to go and get and put inside you, and always never say anything negative and suppress your emotion. It's just the most crazy system, and it's just so. It's also all the scientific foundations of that are very shaky. I mean, we've got to deal with our stuff. We've got to embrace and process and reconceptualize. I and mean, I do research. I've been doing clinical trials for years and I've just done a set now and just looking at the narrative, looking at the physiology, looking at the neurophysiology as a neuroscientist, we can't deny our emotions. I'm so glad that you say what you do because it's vital. It's so important and yet we live in a society that has, as you say, this narrative of positive thoughts only, positive thoughts are what attract good outcomes. When people are experiencing cancer or illness, They should just be positive. Mm. When people are angry because of issues around injustice, you know, stop being so angry. Yeah. So much in our social construct that really conspires Mm. against people being healthy with themselves. And as you mentioned, you know, internal pain always comes out, always. Always. And people who pay the price are firstly ourselves in terms of our own mental health Mm. and well-being but also our families and our colleagues and our communities. And, you know, to be clear, I'm not anti-happiness or anti-positivity. No, you you want to get there. That's obviously the goal. Yeah. I love love being happy. You know, I edited a 90-chapter handbook called the Oxford Handbook of Happiness. I'm deeply (laughs) interested in what it is that makes human beings happy. But what is clear is that a lot of the so-called strategies and tools that are promoted – Mm. or that have become part of this social propelled narrative Mm. are actually undermining our, our undermining our resilience and undermining our happiness. Oh, I totally agree with you. Thank you for saying that. That is so true because it's really become like a quick fix solution. If I if I feel bad, I'll just say a few happy things and force a smile and I'll be okay. And they, it's it's not like that. You you those emotions are going to they're volcanic. They're real. They're going to explode somewhere. So the more you suppress them and pretend to put a band-aid on, that's not going to be the solution. Yeah, I think that's so true. And you know, if we look at the history of emotions. One of the first people who described emotions in the way that you and I are talking about was Charles Darwin. You know, Charles Darwin wrote a book that lesser known called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. And what he described is how our emotions are critical in helping us to adapt and thrive in the world. Mm. That, you know, when you experience fear or anger, sadness, grief, anxiety, these emotions are helping you to firstly communicate with other people. Yeah. uh, But secondly, to communicate with yourself. You know, what are your values important? What is necessary for you? And so it's really interesting because this idea of emotions being functional is something that has been sidelined in psychology and in society both, and yet is critical to our ability to 
really look at the world and see how we want to be and how we want to bring ourselves to it. Oh, that's so beautifully said. And I'm so glad that you referenced back. I didn't even think about that with, with what Darwin was, that, that book that he wrote so many years ago, that's not spoken about that much. And that's so true. That's how we relate. And, and I love the fact that you that you stress this, the, that we have to use emotions to understand our values. You know, that's a big thing that you talk about. And I want to ask you more in depth about that. Because one of the, the parts of work that I do is look at the concept of what a thought is and how a thought, I've gone into very much around the science of thought and mind and non-conscious mind and understanding the mind-brain connection. But I say that to say that in a thought, a thought is a concept and it contains within it emotional memories and informational memories and physical memories. And so it's a way of thinking of it like a thoughts look like trees and trees and in your brain, they look like trees and they've got all these little components and right down to the neurophysiology, but you've, emotions are part of that and you can't separate that from the information. You know, we're thinking, we're feeling, we're choosing and you're building a thought. So emotions are part of, you cannot just put them over there and try and turn them into something that they're not and ignore what's, you've got to deal with them and process them. Yeah, it's really interesting that mm. in organizations and beyond, there's this idea that emotions are soft skills, mm. and yet they're not. They are the most fundamental skills. They're the cornerstone of mm. resilience, of motivation, of our ability to work towards something that's important to us. Love it. And so really, you know, what I'm promoting very strongly in my work, and it's supported by the research, is that it's not just that we need to, you know, tolerate emotions, but it's actually beyond that. It's this idea that you speak to a little bit earlier, which is that emotions contain signposts to the things that we care about. I love how you say that. You know, it's, it's so important if you are someone mm. who, if you imagine as a listener, you've got a piece of paper of something that you're experiencing right now, and you had to write that emotion on the piece of paper. And that might be an experience of loneliness, sadness, grief, anxiety, anger, whatever that emotion is. That's on that one side of the paper. If you turn that piece of paper over and you invite yourself to consider what are the values that that emotion might point to, the value of, you know, what loneliness might be pointing to is yearning and connection. Then mm. even in the context of, say, social distancing, yeah. that we can be, you, you know, social distancing is not the same as emotional distancing and we can be lonely, that we mm. can be in a relationship with someone for 25 years, but be lonely, lonely. because being mm. with someone is not the same as not being lonely. So yeah. you can turn that piece of paper over and you can say, what is the value that is being presented to me by this loneliness? And it might be yearning and connection. You know, guilt mm, as a parent, so good. you know, guilt as a parent might Oof, be. Yeah, we all have it. <laughs> you know, it, it might be signposting that you value presence and connected connectedness and that you don't have enough of that right now. Anger. Mm might be signposting that you value justice and fairness. Mm -hmm. And so when we open ourselves up to difficult emotions and expand ourselves to recognize that we are capable and capacious enough as human beings to not only have the things that feel good, the joy and the yeah, yeah. happiness, but that we are capacious enough to actually be open to all of these emotions and that these emotions signpost what we care about and therefore help us to move ourselves in the direction of what we care about. Then we have this incredible capacity 
to be in the world and say, what is working for me and what's not working? And how can I shape myself in a way that, you know, brings me towards what's important here? Mm, I love that. I love it because you also refer to the concept of, of this being data. So emotions are data. And I love that idea. It's, it's data telling you stuff. I talk about thoughts with, with having the, the information, emotions and the physical. I talk about the warning signals. You talk about the data, getting data from the emotions. That's what I heard you saying in your in your TED talk and reading your, and I thought that's just, it's true. It's data. It's telling you, if you're getting the signal, it's telling you something yeah. and you need to listen and find what it's telling you. But we yeah. trained in today's society to just suppress it. I mean, at the shift to a child, a young, an 18-year-old or something feels despair or frustration or something, and they're told, no, that's not right, or that you've depression, you're sick, or you've got an illness. It's just the narrative is so wrong. It's it's so, I think when we shift this idea of, you know, that, that emotions need to be pushed away, and instead we start to show up to those emotions with, Love it. you know, mm. compassion, because mm. feeling these things can be tough. So we've got to be compassionate with ourselves. Yeah. And we show up with a sense of curiosity. You know, what is this emotion as a piece of data mm. telling me is important to me? Then what you're doing is you're not in struggle with yourself. You're not in this unhealthy situation where you're saying, gee, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. Or this oh. relationship isn't working out, but I'm just going to do positive affirmations and smile and get on with my day. And I'm being a little facetious here. But no, I but that's what's happening. What is, you know, what, is, what human beings are invited into. Yeah. And so what I'm inviting with my work is a different way of being. It's this being capacious and saying, you know, that, that gentle acceptance of what we are feeling, it is what it is, then allows us to say, how can I be curious with this? What is this pointing to? And so... What I talk about is is what you reference, this idea that emotions are data. They signpost the things that we care about. But what's really important is they are data, not directives. Just mm, because I feel that's more, really important. You know, data, really, not directives. I love that. So just because I feel guilty as a parent, it might signpost what I need. But it doesn't mean because I feel guilty that I am guilty, that I'm a terrible parent and that, yeah. you know, just because I feel undermined in a meeting, yeah. that might signpost that I need more voice and that voice is important to me. Mm. But it doesn't mean that I now need to, you know, give my notice. Yeah. So okay. Emotions are data, not directives. And what I talk about in the skills of emotional agility is how we can show up to our emotions, but also have the capacity to observe them for what they are. You know, we so own good. our emotions. They don't. Yes. Own. So we need some yeah. skills that enable us to see these emotions, to understand the data that they're pointing to, but also to you know, to use this beautiful language of Viktor Frankl, which I'm sure you've referenced previously in some yes. shape on your podcast, but yeah. it's this idea that, you know, Viktor Frankl survives the Nazi death camps mm -hmm. and he describes this powerful idea between stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space is our power to choose. And it's yes. in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. Yes. yes. When we believe our emotions too strongly when they are treated as fact then there's no space between stimulus and response. You know, someone's mm. starting in on the finances. I don't like the conversation. I leave the room. Mm. I'm stressed. 
I love my children, but I come to the table with my cell phone because I'm stressed. So Mm. what you're doing there is there's no space between stimulus and response. What emotional agility is, it's it's about the skills that enable us to be with our emotions in ways that are compassionate and curious, but also to then create space between us and those emotions, data, not directives, so that we can bring other parts of ourselves forward, our values, our intention, our wisdom, who we want to be in the situation, our centeredness, our breathing. There's so many parts of ourselves Mm. that when we are hooked by a difficult thought, emotion, story, there's no space for anything else. So we want to recognize those thoughts, emotions, and stories in the wisdom that they give us, but also create space to bring the other parts of ourselves forward. Mm, that's that's brilliant. I love that. Can you give an example? Like you said, you started off by uh, whatever. Give any example you want. You said something like you stressed you bring yourself into the table or a guilty parent. So just walk us through that because it's a very what you've you've said something that's so powerful that, that it's data beneath the so, space between and and Victor Frankl I have referenced that about the space between the stimulus and response. It's just yeah. so it's brilliant. So so, maybe, thank, so yeah, I, I'll give I'll give two examples. I'll give good. They'll be I'll lovely. Give an example maybe as it relates to us as adults, and then I'll okay. give an example as maybe it relates to children and parenting. That would be great. Both of those could be, could be helpful. So the first is imagine you are in the workplace or in a situation where you're mm-hmm. feeling really bored. So often when we are feeling bored, we get stuck in that boredom. We become very cynical. We shut down. We start to constrict our world. We can show up to that boredom and we can start saying, we can be compassionate with it. Like being bored, feeling bored is a stifling feeling. Mm -hmm. So we can show up to that and and be kind to ourselves about that. Like Mm -hmm. that's actually a tough situation to be in. We can then start to say, you know, again, if we imagine this piece of paper, there's Mm -hmm. boredom on the one side. What is boredom signaling to you about what you value? Mm. The boredom is signaling that you value maybe growth and learning, and that Mm. you don't have enough of that in your life at the moment. Mm. So now what does this do? This invites you into a space where you can start to architect change. And when I think about change, you know, often we we experience ideas of change as being these big, you know, I've got to go and sell up and go live in France on a wine farm. But no, you know. If you imagine that you are steering a boat and you steer that boat two degrees in a different direction, you will land up at a completely different, you know, two degrees plus two degrees degrees, in a completely different location than if you hadn't changed course that two degrees. So what I speak about in my work is this idea, and again, it's supported by the research that weeks small changes make an enormous difference to our lives. So we think about boredom and we think about valuing growth, okay? And we then are able to start saying, what are some tiny values aligned, not just change for the sake of change, values aligned tweaks that I can be making in my world. Mm -hmm. So a values aligned tweak might be going to a greater level of depth, in my relationships. Okay. Yeah. It could be that I have got all these relationships that mean something to me, but where over time we've become over competent 
in the relationship. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, know exactly when we go out for dinner, what our partner's going to order. We know what yeah. their opinion is going to be about a movie. So we overcompete in that relationship and we can start inviting a tiny tweak, which takes courage. Mm-hmm. And that tiny tweak might be, you know, asking your partner, like, you know, what are your hopes and dreams when COVID is over? You know, what are things that you feel you most want to be doing that will be a reset for you? What are the things that you miss most? We haven't spoken about, you know, when we first started dating, we spoke about these things that we care about. So this is one example of tiny tweaks that create Mm. a greater level of either breadth or depth, but that expand you to the edge of your ability. In a job situation, you can start saying, what are tiny tweaks that I can make right now that bring me closer towards the learning and growth that I need? Mm. It could be that I'm putting my hand up for a project. It could be that I'm having conversations with people that I may not have been having. And so what you're doing is you're now using the information that comes about with the data of, you know, our boredom. Yes, And we're using it to actually do what we need to do, do. which is to be Mm. agile, hence emotional agility. So that's Mm. an example of, you know, what it might look like with the emotion of boredom. With guilt, the same thing. You know, guilt, what I value, maybe presence and connectedness. What are some tiny tweaks that I could make that bring me closer towards that? I might have this habit, which is a default where I bring my cell phone to the table, but where I can now make a tiny tweak, which is I always put my keys into a particular drawer and at dinner time, now the cell phone is in the drawer as well. And Mm. it's, again, not change just for the sake of it. It's change because you are using the emotions as a source of power and a source of change and adaptation in your life. And ultimately, Mm. you know, circling back to the beginning of our conversation, ultimately it's these things, it's the alignment and engagement in what is of value to us and of meaning to us that brings Mm. us happiness as a byproduct. But chasing Mm. happiness as the end product does not work. In fact, we know people who try to be happier or who set a goal of happiness actually become less happy over time. Yeah, there's a lot of research supporting that. So you're doing something different. And if it's helpful, you know, we can talk about what that might look like with children as well. I'm not sure if... Yeah, no, no, do that. We have a lot of of parents as well that listen in. So I think it'll be really great. And then I'd also like to pursue the concept of the positive psychology, because I know there's good and bad in everything, every movement, but you've hit on some things that if you pursue, it's like if you pursue money or you pursue happiness, that's the wrong thing. It's the process that should count more. And and as you say, the data that we get. So we we can talk, give the example of children, and then we can talk a little more around that. So imagine you've got a child who comes home from school and who says something like, you know, mommy, Jack didn't invite me to his birthday party and I'm really angry with him. He didn't invite me to the birthday party. So as a parent with really good intentions, we might try to jump in and say, Mm. well, you know, you've still got to invite him to yours because you can't just not invite one person or gee, isn't Jack terrible? I'll call his parent and I'll sort this out. And what we're doing is we are basically bypassing with good intentions, but we are bypassing our child's emotional experience in the service of like a 
forced solution. And mm. we are failing to help the child to experience their emotions as inherently valuable. And so that's powerful. We we want to fix we want to fix them and wrap them in cotton wool and take all the pain away, but you can't because they they have to go through that. It's an inherent part of the development to be able to experience, and you're invalidating that that emotion. So it kind of makes them get the message that if I feel anything that's not always good, feel it's bad to feel emotions. I've got to push them down. Whereas if we allow them to express it. Yes, I, I mean this is this is so critical because yeah. we are you know in the midst of some stage of a pandemic right now. Yeah, and rest assured, our children will be growing up in a world that, that is very fragile, different. In which mm-hmm. They'll lose their jobs, or their hearts will be broken, or you know they're not going to get the job that they aspire to. And so, the most critical skill set beyond you know mathematics. The most critical skill set we can impart with our kids is the skill set of how to deal with the full range of emotions. Mm. And so when we, even with really good intentions, push aside our children's emotions, what are we teaching them? We're teaching them that emotions are to be feared. Mm. We are taking away from the capacity to deal with the skills and develop Mm. the skills that help them to deal with emotions. So instead of doing that, you know, what emotional agility teaches is firstly, we can show up to our children's difficult feelings. Mm, The child who comes home from school and who says, you know, mommy, I'm so angry because this happened. Yeah. You know, we both grew up in South Africa and in South Africa, there's this beautiful phrase, as you know, you've heard it a hundred times, Sabobona. Yeah. Sabobona. So and beautiful. Sabobona, of course, is the Zulu greeting. It's the yes. Zulu word. Hello, that you hear a hundred times every day on the streets. Yes. But Sawabona, the beautiful intention behind the word Sawabona is that Sawabona literally translated means I see you. I know. It's so beautiful. I see you. I know. I love that. When I heard you say that again, it it took me back to all my years growing up and how that's just such a significant part of the communication. It's that acknowledgement of you as a human. It's It's that I care. I see you. That's amazing. And so we can sawabona ourselves. And this is what, you know, I've already been talking about, but we can also sawabona our children. Love it. You know, we can, we can sawabona our children. And what I mean by that is the conversation with the child that is, that's tough. That mm. feels tough to not be invited. That feels tough. Okay. So that's showing up. Mm. The next thing that we can do is we can use in my work on emotional agility, I call this stepping out. It's helping our children to label their emotions effectively. So important. Yeah. So what you're calling anger is actually the child's feeling sad and the child's feeling mm. rejected. And we know that when we label our own emotions effectively. It's incredibly powerful. Very. And when we help our children to do that, there are longitudinal studies showing that this, Mm. what is called emotion granularity, help our children to develop greater levels of resilience and well-being, to self-regulate better, to delay gratification better. Because if you imagine now your two-year-old is 16 years old and someone says, oh, I've got a great idea. Why don't we let the air out of the principal's car tires? You want your child to be able to say, 
gee, on the one hand, I'm really excited and tempted and this seems really funny. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm labeling what I'm experiencing here as guilt, disconnect, this doesn't feel right. And so a child mm-hmm. who has skills at labeling their emotion is then able to create greater space between stimulus and response. Yeah. Then the third aspect between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in yes. that space is our power to choose. Which is what so important. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we choosing? We're choosing values. We're choosing intention, who we want to be in the world. And so we can then start saying to our children, you know, you feel sad and I'm showing up to it. I'm helping you to label those emotions. And then I'm helping you to discern beneath difficult emotions are signposts to the things we care about. Mm, it sounds like friendship is important to you. Okay? Yeah. It sounds like friendship is important to you. Who do you want to be as a friend? What does being a friend look like to you? How do you want to be a good friend in this context? So now you've gone completely beyond the bypassing of the difficult emotion. And you've taught management of it. Mm -hmm. You've taught management and you've helped your child to develop a grounded compass of what's important, their values. Mm -hmm. And so what is the learning here? The learning is emotions are transient. They pass. I don't need to be Mm -hmm. directed by any given emotion. Yeah. Number two, I get to choose who I want to be in this situation. Number three, emotions are not scary. I actually Mm. have skills to breathe into them. Mm. And it's these skills that are going to help our children. So I love it. Very long example no, of no, a very short question you asked. No, no, but it's very valid. Example, but this yeah. is what, what this looks like. No, it's very good. Lately, there seems to be too many reasons to be extra stressed out and anxious. A pandemic, protests, elections, trying to navigate homeschooling and work from home. Stress, when managed incorrectly, can wreak havoc on your mental and physical health and relationships. So it's vital to make managing your mental health a priority. Besides practicing proper mind management techniques, I highly recommend taking magnesium and the best supplement out there is BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. This is the most potent oral magnesium you will ever find, period. Today, you can get 10% off with a special cleaning up the mental mess coupon code when you visit www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash leaf and enter the code Dr. Leaf 10. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H forward slash L-E-A-F and use the coupon code Dr. Leaf 10. Once again, that's www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash leaf and the coupon code Dr. Leaf 10. The link will be in the show notes. Examples help to put it into into perspective, and as you're talking, I'm seeing all the the the, the under the underpinnings of the science behind everything that you're saying. It, it totally correlates with what my audience is hearing all the time. So it's a beautiful example, and I love your the way you explain the emotional agility and the space between, and it's 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 vital. And you know, be, if the food, as as information hits you like that, I didn't get invited to the birthday party. There's that tremendous neurochemical flood and that whole because it's a mind thing, and you've got to process it. So it's thinking, feeling, choosing your mind and action and your whole body responds and from the clinical trials we've been doing now what we see is that when you teach because essentially what you te- what you just explained is in managing the emotions it's managing your thinking your responses and everything you're giving people the skills to to work in that moment what do i do the, the management the mind i talk about 
my research is all around mind management and science yeah. of thought and so on. And as you do that, we see such changes in the brain. We see the changes in the alpha, the alpha, beta, gamma. Change, it changes. You see learning taking place. You direct the neuroplasticity. And whereas if you just respond and you react and you get or you suppress the emotion, we see all kinds of damage occurring in the brain. You, literal brain damage, which can be healed as you as you do the process you've described. You can actually heal that damage. Our brain is so plastic, and our mind is driving that process. So you're pretty much saying, you know, use your mind to control your emotions, and the physiology will follow. If you suppress those emotions, we see the we see the patterns of suppression. We see how to the, the cardiovascular system sets you up for dementias. I mean, from young, if we are suppressing our emotions, we're setting ourselves up for the dementias, quite literally, because over time, it's just wearing out your brain. So I'm all behind 100% undergirding what you're saying. It's just, I'm and seeing it in my research. I'm seeing it all the time. And it's, and these, these skills are really, you know, they, they, these day-to-day skills and then they're these long-term impact skills because exactly when we're doing it day-to-day, it's like, gee, I had an interaction with someone that I care about that did work out. But when we have particular ways of coming to our emotions that are basically our defaults, then what we're doing is we are often constricting our world. You know, if you lovely, yeah, emotion story, one of the things that I talk about a lot in my work is that there's nothing inherently wrong with having a thought. The thought might be, you know, I'm not good enough or gee, this project is destined to fail. There's nothing wrong with it. And I'll describe why I say that. There's nothing wrong with having an emotion. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong in having an emotion that feels tough. These emotions, as I've mentioned, are there to help us to thrive. In I, I love what you just said. And I want to just quickly interrupt you for one second, because you said something that's so significantly important. And thank you for saying it because it supports what I've been saying, saying as well. So you're supporting what people are hearing. I love how you've said that there's nothing inherently wrong with any thought that you have, because things like cognitive behavior therapy, for example, and there's some really good techniques within CBT, but they, it, it, it tends to take people, that thought is wrong. You mustn't have that thought and you've got to replace it with this thought. It's like this, it's, it's, it's not allowing people to process that thought is too telling you something instead of saying it's wrong if i'm hearing you correctly which is how i'm i teach it is that thought that thought is not inherently wrong it's telling you something about what you are going through that you need to dig deeper so therefore you can reconceptualize that thought versus that's the wrong thought that's your problem top that thought for that one don't don't fix it just kind of stamp it out with a band-aid stick another one on top with all these techniques that's not going to those techniques are not going to be sustainable because that thought will come back up again you can shove it down for so long with a little technique but it makes you feel bad about you as well because then then the thought becomes oh i'm bad because i had this thought no you're not bad you're experiencing life and your thought is a response to life why did you respond like that to use the data I, i'm just i just i got yeah, excited no, there. i got excited and, no it's really really it's really powerful the way, the way that I, you know, conceptualize this in my work is that if we think about, say, a thought, human beings have around 16,000 yeah. spoken thoughts every single day. Yeah. I've and done, course, I've, in one of my books, I've actually done all the calculations to show with Hammerhoff's work. Have, you may be familiar with that, with the quantum vibrations and all that. So it's quite, so yeah, t- that's, yeah, so we I have totally. Thousands yeah. of thoughts every single day and many more course to our minds. We have thousands of emotions, exactly. uh, stress, and so on. Exactly. We also have stories, you know, stories that might have been written on our mental chalkboards when we were in grade three or five years old about who we are, whether we're good enough, whether we're not good enough, and so on. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with these. You might have developed a story 
when you were a child about whether you should be vulnerable. And that story might have actually been completely functional to the family that you grew up in, where vulnerability might have been punished. So there's Mm. nothing inherently wrong in having these things. In fact, again, connecting with, you know, Charles Darwin and the work that we've looked at is that really, if we didn't have these, we would be completely disconnected with our world. Our Mm. thoughts and our emotions and our stories help us to make sense of the world. It It is this bringing together that helps me to understand, oh, you know, what I'm hearing in the background is a washing machine and I should pay no attention to this. But this other sound is my child and I need to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. You know, what you're seeing there is this fundamental human orientation to sense make, to bring thoughts, emotions, and stories together. So there's nothing inherently wrong with this. They are normal. They are your body and your psychology doing the job that it was meant to do, which is to protect you and to to help you cope. Yeah. And help you cope. So then you start saying, okay, well, when do they start becoming a problem? What, what, what point? And what I would suggest is this, that when your thoughts, emotions, and stories are things that you become hooked into and they take you away from your values. Oh, that's really good. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I feel sad. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when I feel sad and I'm automatically responding to that sadness by staying in bed and not connecting with people Mm -hmm. that are important to me, then it's taking me away from my values. So what I describe in my work is that emotional rigidity is habitual ways of being with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories. Being stuck. Mm -hmm. us away from our values that keep us stuck, that keep our world small. And that the alternative is by noticing these with compassion, with curiosity. And I can talk about some pragmatic strategies. That would be great. And then making choices about who do I want to be in the world. So emotional agility is about noticing these ways of being with ourselves Mm -hmm. and bringing greater levels of intentionality and responsiveness and values to the situation. That's fantastic. So basically we can get stuck so that the thought is going to help us in that moment. And they, it could be something that you could use for the rest of your life if it's working for you, but there may reach a time in your life where that's not working for you anymore. And if you get stuck there, it can hold you back and make things worse. And then it's time to be agile in your emotions and look at the data and see how you need to grow and go to the next phase. And we're always changing as humans. Every experience is changing us. We're not staying the same. This is what I always tell people because I work a lot with neuroplasticity and the length of time that it takes for, how long does it actually take for memory to form and where does it form and all that kind of thing. And people don't realize that you are always, you as a scientist do, but an average average person doesn't realize that your brain and mind are always changing. So your emotions are always changing. So you may as well direct the process instead of letting it control you. And I think what you've just, if I understand you correctly, this emotional agility is taking advantage of the fact that we are always changing and to see how we can use our experience to change in a better way and move through life in a with, with all the experiences that we've had. So those emotions can serve you as opposed to holding you back. Because people get so stuck with the, the, the rigidity, as you said, the emotional rigidity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, people will often say, well, so say I'm feeling flooded by my emotions. 
how can I start using these skills? Like, what does this look like? And also, if I'm flooded by my emotions, they often are taking me completely off guard. So how can I start interceding? Yeah. And what I would suggest is actually, you know, when we look at it, actually, it's not that emotions just completely take people by surprise. You know, if you think about the fights, the arguments, the conflict that people Mm -hmm. have, it's often the same conflict repeated time and time again in your relationship. Yes, so true, yeah. So we actually get into patterned ways of being. Mm -hmm. We get into patterned ways of saying, I'm not creative and therefore I'm not going to do such and such. Mm. I'm too old to dance, to explore, to, you know. So these are now patterned ways of being that take us away from values that might be of learning and intimacy, growth, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is that it's really important to recognize that there are these patterned ways of being and to, you know, just even look in a day-to-day context of an individual way that you are being in the world and think about, like, what are some patterns that are not values-connected? A pattern might be, you know, getting stuck in social media. You know, it's an autopilot response Mm -hmm. that is often taking us away from being present or being focused or doing other things. So that's a way of being. So the other, you know, some other tools that can be helpful to people is I talk about this idea of like showing up to ourselves with with compassion. And I think this Mm -hmm. is really important. Yeah, it's very important. Because... You know, we we seem to live in a society that has this idea that we all in a never ending, you know, Iron Man or Iron Woman competition where, <laughs> yeah. where we keep needing to just be hard on ourselves. Mm. Prove and, ourselves to ourselves and prove ourselves to everyone else. And very yeah, demanding. And there is no growth Mm-mm. that comes about through No, because that's toxic stress. I mean, that's toxic pressure. Yeah. It, it is astounding to me that even in the context of so much illness and death and uncertainty that, for instance, the coronavirus brought yeah, on, yeah. that you're seeing memes on social media that say things like, you know, or intimate this idea that, you know, if you didn't use the time in yeah. quarantine to write your screenplay or build your side hustle, that it's not because you didn't have the time, it's because you're lazy. That's and, terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, there's been it's, a lot of kickback from that because there's been a lot of that, but there's also been a lot of conversations coming against that. So it's good because what I see, and I agree with you that it's, it's so wrong, but what I love to see is the fact that people are actually arguing against that. So it's almost like we've taken time in society in this very unique time period where we're globally facing the same enemy all of humanity for the first time in history, we're thinking differently. So instead of that just becoming a constant meme, people are fighting back. They're saying, hey, no, that isn't the right way. What about if I just need whatever, you know? And I love the conversation that is generated. It's so... The analysis, the emotional agility. They're showing emotional agility. It's it's, it's a community level, society level emotional agility. I love it. It's the invitation to do that with yourself. Because uh-huh. with ourselves, we often want to compare ourselves with others. We often want to build ourselves up into this idea that I keep needing to be. Mm. And so a really important part of emotional agility is self-compassion. That's so good. Mm. This is tough. 
you know, this is a tough situation to be in. This might be a tough experience. And so sometimes people say, but isn't self-compassion about lying to yourself or being weak or lazy? And, mm. you know, the answer is actually no. No, yeah. In fact, the research shows the opposite. Research yeah. shows that when people have got their own back, when they're kind to themselves, that it actually encourages the capacity to be honest, to explore, to take risks, be motivated, mm. because you know that if things don't work out, you've got your own self that you can come back to. Does anyone else find bras very uncomfortable? I have always struggled to find one that fits me perfectly and I hate those annoying tags that scratch my skin. And this is why I am so thankful I found Third Love. Third Love is probably the most comfortable bra I've ever owned and one that fits perfectly. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all day comfort and support. Bras come in over 80 sizes, including half cups, and are made with signature memory foam cups, no slip straps, and smooth, scratch-free band with a table's label, so no annoying itching. Every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. So far, Third Love has donated over 15 million in bras. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash drleaf now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash drleaf for 15% off today. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. You know, we spoke earlier in this conversation about parenting. Yes. So anyone who's a parent knows. Yeah. Yeah. Experience when you've got an 18 month old, two year old, and the child's yeah. out of call, and they're in a restaurant and they start crawling away from you, and they turn around and they look at you to make sure that you're still there. Yes, that reinforce. And then what do they do? They crawl more because what what is what is that that's happened? Okay, what that is is John Bowlby describes this. It's the secure attachment, the secure mm. attachment that the child has with the parent, knowing that the, the parent is there for you is what allows the child to explore, be curious, take risks, grow. Exactly. And self-compassion is that very... It allows the same thing. It allows the same thing. Give yourself permission. Because there's also so much research showing that it increases, self-compassion increases empathy for others. Because when you have empathy for yourself, you increase your empathy to others. Change these. There's also the research showing how that compassion reduces aggression. Because very often when you're hard on yourself, you're actually very hard on others. You become, and you can become defensive, almost victim mentality and aggressive. But when you have compassion for yourself, because a lot of people in that, don't they? I mean, this is your field as well. I'm I'm just reinforcing. There's so much research around this showing that we've got to have that compassion it's vital it's a it's, it's a lifestyle the to the self is what allows you to see others so let me ask you a question related to that do you think our because this is this is what i'm thinking and i want to see what you think do you think our current narrative of mental health and our current very technologically advanced incredibly brilliant modern era has 
come with a lot of positives, obviously, but a lot of the negatives that we've, we we don't think deeply enough. We don't deal with our emotions enough. And we've lost, because of that, we've lost this idea of compassion and empathy. It's kind of not lost, but it's been reduced because it's all become a very much a, the biomedical model, which dominates mental health and the neuroreductionist. I'm a neuroscientist. It's people have become so neuroreductionist. Everything's about the physical that you can see, but the spiritual part of us, this big, huge, emotional, human side of us is kind of, that's the woo-woo stuff. We don't have time for that. Just let's, you know, let's get results oriented. Let's see the physical results. And we've forgotten about this huge part of us. And it seems yeah. to be, I watched in my clinical practice, I watched 25 years as I practice, I watched this thing change. I've watched 38 years of research. I've seen this shift. Have you found this too? Do you think this is a issue? Have you seen this as a kind of result of our modern era potentially? In, in different in different ways. Certainly in psychology, what I experienced in my work, especially when I was trying to, for instance, find someone to supervise my PhD, yeah. is, you know, the idea of emotions was really, at that time, you know, if you think about the history of psychology, it's this, okay, there's Freud, it feels like too difficult, mm-hmm. we can't measure it, therefore mm-hmm. we don't want to go there. So then you move into behavioral models of psychology, mm-hmm. which is that it's only if you can measure it. How Mm -hmm. many steps does the person take? How many times does the dog eat the bone? (laughs) You know, the bone. So so there's this very behavioral phase that we go into. We then move into this idea of cognitions. You know, well, we Mm -hmm. can measure how many times someone thinks something or they can report how many times. But even then they reduced the whole concept of thinking. I mean, it was just... And so this idea of emotions, emotions Mm. were seen as being, you know, immeasurable. Untouchable. (laughs) Untouchable. And yet, and yet. It's the driver. It's the oil. It's the glue. (laughs) And and of every part of our organizations, our, our society, our parenting. And so I think this is, you know, a really, so I think that's one part of it. But I think Mm. that the other part of it is that, our capacity as human beings has been outpaced by technology. Mm, that's a so good way of saying it. When human beings are facing huge amounts of information, and that information often brings with it uncertainty and stress, mm-hmm. what that can often lead to is defaulting to comfort, defaulting to story, to stereotype, us and them, instead of being transactional, we become, instead of being relational, we become very transactional. That's such a good Um, way of putting it. So I think we've been outpaced by technology and therefore these skills of slowing down into ourselves. We have to relearn it. Mm. And there are ways we can do that. So Yeah, I agree. You know, if, if people are saying, well, how do I do this? Practically, I'll give you some examples of what I think this looks like. The first is if you in your day-to-day world are using a big label to describe what you're feeling. So I'm stressed. I'm stressed Mm -hmm. is a very common label. that Just a huge big umbrella term. The big umbrella term. I'm stressed or I'm busy or or even I'm angry. Or I'm tired or I'm depressed. Yeah, the big words, the big umbrella words, yeah. So we'll often use an umbrella word, but... There is a world of difference between stress and disappointment. Mm. Stress and that knowing, knowing feeling of I'm in the wrong job or the Mm. wrong career. Uh, Stress and that feeling of I'm just exhausted. Mm -hmm. Too much going on, yeah. So if you move away from the big label 
and move into what I've found in my work and other people, Lisa Feldman Barrett and many others have found is called emotion granularity. And emotion granularity is basically saying, what are, you know, what are other ways that I could describe this emotion? What are two other examples? So if you recognize that this thing that you're calling stress is actually disappointment, that allows you to then say, I feel disappointed. What do I need to do here? It automatically moves you from the feeling of being incapacitated by stress into, I'm disappointed. Maybe I need to have a conversation. I'm exhausted. Mm. What do I need to do to look after myself right now? I'm guilty. What can connect me more with the people that I care about or the causes that I care about. So when we label our emotions more accurately, what it allows us to do is understand both the cause of the emotion, but also to bring together a sense of what do I need to do in the situation. And it actually starts to activate what scientists call the readiness potential in our brain. I've been researched that too, yeah you know, bring ourselves towards a goal. So that's one strategy people can use. Another that can be really helpful is often when we are feeling upset or sad or where we've got these thoughts, emotions, stories that are hooking us, we will say things like, I am no good. I so dangerous. am sad. Yeah. I am angry or I am not creative. So what I would encourage mm. is instead of saying I am, when you say I am, it makes it sound as if you are the are bad. Yeah, that you the you the problem. All of you 100% yeah. is the thing. So yeah. what's happening is you are then the psychological term for this is fusion. You are basically fusing yourself with the emotion, the thought, the story. And that's disruptive. Okay. And and there's no space for anything else. Mm. So very simple and, and it's powerful, but I think actually revolutionary, is to start noticing your thoughts, your emotions, and your stories for what they are. Exactly. Thoughts, emotions, and stories. Feelings, not fact. So for instance... Yeah. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. Instead of I am angry, I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry. Instead of I'm not creative, I'm noticing that this is my I'm not creative story. Now, this is so subtle. So, but it's so different, Susan. I'm so glad you've mentioned that and you've explained it so beautifully because it's, we saw in our recent, most recent clinical trials, when you teach people to do that, you actually drop the, the big words, the depression, the anxiety, the stress, the, you drop it down to 81% drop. In other words, the, in, the ability to manage it, the autonomy to feel like they can control the, the situation increases by 81%, which is phenomenal just by shifting, as you said, just creating that distance, that space. So powerful. Exactly. And so what you're doing is you've gone through the first phase of emotional agility is the showing up, the compassion. So good, yeah. Compassion and then. what is really about the stepping out. The emotions are data, not directive. So how can I kind of step out? And, of course, it's very difficult to read the instructions when you're inside the bottle. So we actually need to step out of the bottle bottle. and be saying, you know, how can I create space? So the way that we do this is 
the granularity that I spoke about. Yeah. I'm noticing the thought, the emotion, the feeling for what it is. Writing, expressive writing, where you write about mm -hmm. the challenge that you're facing is really important. And then you start being able to say, now, who do I want to be in this situation? What are my emotions signaling to me about what's mm -hmm. important? And how can I bring myself towards that in the way that we described earlier? Oh, that's beautiful. So well said. Now, you've written an incredible book called Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change and Thrive in Work and Life. So you've captured what we've been talking about now pretty much is you've captured that in this book. It's, it's in the book. I, yeah. I talk about it also in my TED Talk, The Gift of yes. Emotional Courage. But the actual processes are in the book, described and very practically in the book. It's beautiful. And so, people, where can people get hold of that book? Where can they find out more about you? So, the book's available Wherever wherever. The TED Talk, of course, online. And then yes. another thing that might be of interest to people is I've got an emotional agility quiz, which I saw that on your website. Yeah. It's a, a couple of minutes and it generates a 10 page report as a PDF. Wow. And that's really helpful because it's about how do you typically deal with your emotions? What are your values? And it's really about these processes. And that can be found on susandavid.com forward slash learn. That's fantastic. Well, we're going to put that in the show notes and the name of the book and the link to your TED Talk. And I just like, feel like I need another five hours to talk to you. So we're going to have to do this again. No, we, it was amazing. I mean, it's just been incredible. It's just so, I so relate to what you're saying. It's just, you explain it so beautifully. And it's just, it's just such good basic information that we need to get ourselves back in touch with our emotions. You know, not just the simple, as you say, you've got to show up, get the value and then you know, direct yourself into an action step, sort of, would that kind of summarize how you, just summarize it, give us, give, give us a sort of overarching okay, so if summary. I was doing, if I was doing a very quick summary of. Yes, do that, give us. I would say emotional agility is fundamentally about being healthy with ourselves so that very we good. can be healthy with others. Love it. And what does that mean? Emotional agility is the ability to be with ourselves in ways that are compassionate, curious, and courageous because moving in the direction of our values, if that's a difficult conversation yeah. or activism or anything else, often takes courage. So emotional agility is the ability to be with ourselves in ways that are compassionate, curious, curious and also courageous. courageous. I love that. Beautiful. So that we can respond to the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And oh, that's that so good. ultimately helps us to be more resilient, adaptive, and to bring the best of ourselves forward. Oh, that's a beautiful summary. Thank you so much. It's been so informative and just such good logical common sense that I think frees people so much to recognize, hey, that's not you. That's just what you're going through. You could do something about this. So thank you so much. It's been thank wonderful. Thank you for I've loved being with you. Oh, it's been amazing. Let's Please, let's do this again. It's been so good. I'd love to do it again. Love to talk, keep, keep contact. And thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. 
So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.